Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, we discuss NDP leader Jagmeet Singh's win in the Burnaby South by-election and what this means going forward as we get closer to the October federal election. We'll also speak with Hamilton Mountain MPP Monique Taylor, who was removed from the legislature over accusing the Ontario government of lying to parents of children with autism. And in local news, a lawyer who says he represents medical marijuana patients says Hamilton police violated a court order by shutting down cannabis dispensaries here in the city. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Three big by-elections held yesterday. Uh, the results are in. Jagmeet Singh, and the leader of the uh, federal NDP party, did win his by-election in Burnaby South. Uh, two other elections, uh, by-elections, that aren't going to have a significant change in the landscape on Parliament Hill, but, uh, well, they could have some reflection on voter uh, apathy or maybe even voter interest in some of the things that have been going on. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Anna Esselman, who is an associate professor of political science at uh, the University of Waterloo. Professor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Well, thank you for having me, Bill. Any surprises from last night? Uh, you know what? I think by the time yesterday had rolled around, most people had thought that the way the by-elections were going to end uh, ended the way they did. So there was some speculation about whether, you know, sort of whether Jagmeet Singh would have a tough time. But I think it's pretty clear the NDP focused a lot of their efforts on that riding, and uh, and it worked out for him, which is great, great for him because of the speculation that if it hadn't worked out, his days may have been numbered uh, as leader of the party. Now, how, how? Just give me a read on that because you're right; he did win by a pretty significant margin. Uh, but there was some talk, I guess, about a month or so ago that uh, that that was neck and neck. That the Liberal candidate uh, actually, at one point, I think, had a slight lead, but uh, she kind of shot herself in the foot, I guess, with uh, some of the, the the tweets and some of the uh, social media posts that she made, and pretty much took herself out of the running. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And these are, I mean, these are these are the challenging times for political parties and for candidates these days with social media. Um, because really any, any wayward remark, anything that can be construed, um, because it's either a, a direct comment or taken out of context, can actually do a lot of damage to a candidate and to a party. So, you know, if you're a Canadian who's thinking about running for election, you actually have to be really careful now about what you're saying and how you're saying it. So the Liberals kind of, you know, they, they, removed, um, they removed her, they were able to put another candidate in place, but um, but I think the NDP had put a lot of their resources into Burnaby South. And, and the other thing I think we need to remember, Bill, too, is we do read a lot into these by-elections. Sometimes they're meaningful and sometimes they're not. Even if we just look at voter turnout, it was highest in Burnaby South, and I think that's because of the organizational effort of the NDP there. But still, you know, it was under 30%. And in Outremont, it was like 21%. And in York Simcoe, it's 19%. So we can sort of try to pull out some some meaning from these elections, and there are things that we can pull out. But we also want to keep in mind that it's really low participation in the grand scheme of things, so we don't want to read too much into what's going on um, when it comes to by-elections. And is, uh, is Jagmeet Singh out of the, uh, the, the, the hot seat as of now? I mean, as you mentioned, some of the, the greatest pressure that he had on him over the last year especially was from within his own party. And and I yeah you know, I've heard the same rumors that, that you've just mentioned that you know had he lost last night that that may well have been the end of his tenure as the leader of the party, but uh, is all forgiven now and is is, is everything going to be happy? There's one big happy family in the NDP caucus now. Well, you know what I don't 
I think thing, I think the team will try to pull together because we're only a, you know a number of months out from the federal election. But I don't think that Singh's challenge is over yet because now what has to happen is you actually have to galvanize your resources to organize for the campaign. And from everything that I've seen and I've read, the NDP is the farthest behind. Right? They're farthest behind on fundraising. They're the farthest behind on nominating candidates. Um, about a quarter of their caucus is not running again. And so I think for Jagmeet Singh, this is great because now he will have, like for him it's great, he'll have a, you know, more media attention when he's in Parliament. He'll be able to sort of directly spar with his political opponents in the House of Commons. But when it comes to the actual execution of a campaign, that national effort, I think his, his feet are to the fire in terms of trying to get all of that together. And the other two parties are going to be well ahead of, ahead of him on both fronts. So if he, you know, this is where he really has to show leadership and pulling that team together and getting candidates in place because, you know, before we know it, you know, August and September are going to roll around and that's when the real the real scrutiny will be on. Well, and you're absolutely right. I guess as the old saying goes, there's a long way to go and a short time to get there. Uh, yeah. because, exactly. uh, because he's, he's going to have to deal with some of the discontent with his own caucus. I mean, there's some serious questions about his leadership ability and some, some gaffes that he made as, as leader of the party before he even got in there. And you're right, even if he, once he gets into the show there and, and on question period, uh, they don't have a whole lot of time before they go to summer recess and then they're into election mode. No, exactly. And I think, I mean, if I were, if I were one of the party strategists, I think that's where all the focus would start to shift to just getting the organization in place and making sure your candidates were going. Uh, you know, we're ready to, um, to, to compete in this election. And I think, I mean, we, we expect a lot of our leaders. I think it's a, it's a hard job, and we are quick to point out all the flaws, and we're, and we're quick to point out missteps. But I think we also have to keep in mind that Putting yourself out there, especially as in, as a leader of a party in a national election, these are not easy. These are not easy things to do, and it's you know most of us have a hard time just trying to. I mean, even now on the radio, I'm thinking, am I saying the right thing? Am I doing this right? Because <laughs> the pressure is on, and I can't even imagine doing that with national media and everyone sort of waiting for you to trip up. So, I would say on that on that point, we should still be. We should still be thankful that we have, you know, our fellow citizens that put themselves out there. But if you want that job, I mean, it's one thing to have the job. It's another thing to do the job. And, uh, and now the pressure on him and what his caucus will be looking for is for him to do that job. And part of it's performing in Parliament and getting some, the poll numbers back up. But a lot of it is also like bringing in the fundraising money, having your supporters and your partisans um, you know, cheering you on and willing to come out and work for you. And I think that is, he's got long days ahead of him just prepping for that. I want to talk about the uh, the implications of the uh, the Outremont uh, by-election. Uh, that, of course, was a seat that was held by uh, Tom Mulcair, the former leader of the federal NDP. Uh, it, he kind of scooped it from the Liberals some years ago, of course, during that. And it was kind of the precursor, I guess, of the orange uh, wave that happened mm-hmm. in Quebec. Uh, it went back to the Liberals yesterday. Now, there was a lot of speculation, Anna, about, well, what's this uh, SNC-Lavalin scandal going to do? Uh, are people going to show up and, and just show the Liberals that they're really ticked off at them? Uh, in Quebec, it's almost the reverse. They love the way the federal government has handled this uh, pretty much, and I don't know if that was reflected in the vote or not yesterday. Well, I think, uh, yeah, so the Outremont case is, an, I mean, I would be very concerned if I were the NDP, 
uh, or even, you know, for the Conservatives, too, that uh, Outremont is certainly an example of that the NDP may struggle in Quebec. And I think, you know, your point about the, the ways different parts of Canada see different things that happen in Ottawa, this certainly will be, I think, a, you know, a national election where we do see regional tensions coming right back up to the fore. So when we think about pipelines and, you know, what the West thinks about pipelines versus what, you know, Ontarians might think about pipelines, or even something like this case, SNC-Lavana, where Quebecers have a very different view of that company and what that company has provided for them in terms of employment. And it could be an example of Quebecers thinking the rest of Canada does not understand what's going on here and they will have a totally different view. And this might be an election where we see these regional tensions coming coming back up and will be reflected in the vote. But I think for Uchiman, you know, that was Tom Mulcair's seat for quite a while. It had been a Liberal seat. But this, I think, you know, this could likely mean that the NDP are going to struggle in Quebec and you're not going to have that repeat of, you know, securing 59 seats the way they did under Jack Layton in, in 2011. And from that standpoint, Anna, I mean, I don't know if we can overstate how important Quebec is when uh, the federal vote happens in October. Oftentimes, uh, elections and, and governments are won and lost in that province before they even go to the Manitoba border. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, Quebec is very important. The GTA, right, mm-hmm. or the greater Toronto-Hamilton area, that's very important. And if the NDP, I mean, even if I'm thinking from the Hamilton perspective, you've got these you know, a number of, of places in Ontario, Hamilton, Windsor, these other places where the NDP have been quite strong. And, you know, if seats start to change in those areas, that's really, you know, that, that won't be great for the NDP. And, and I mean, the other factor, too, for the Conservatives, been focusing a lot here on the NDP, but the People's Party is a new party. And uh, in Burnaby South, they took 11% of the vote. And again, not a, not a huge turnout but the People's Party of Canada could be a factor for the Conservatives. They may be able to win just little bits of votes here and there. Um, that, can, that could be problematic for the Conservative Party. They didn't have a great showing in York Simcoe. They didn't have a great showing in Outremont. But this was their very first dry run at competing. And, uh, and who knows what that, that factor will have in the election. It will be an interesting trend to watch. Absolutely. Anna, thank you so much for the uh, the perspective on this. Really appreciate your time today. Well, thanks for having me, Bill. Great talking with you. Anna Esselman, of course, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Waterloo. I want to swing over now to David Aiken, of course, uh, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News. Uh, good morning, David. How are you doing today? It was a bit of a long night last it night. It was, Bill, wasn't it? up watching all those election <laughs> results, but that's what I love to do. You're a political reporter, and uh, there's nothing more exciting than uh, three three elections, which is, your, as, as, as your guest was just saying, there's some there's some things to read into what happened last night for sure. Yeah, York Simcoe is I think has been a conservative seat as long as that seat's been in existence. So that wasn't a big mm-hmm. surprise. But nope. th- there's a lot of of side stories to what happened in in Burnaby South and in Ultramont, aren't there? There are, and you know one of the uh, themes I've been harping on, uh, actually going back really to the Ontario provincial election, has been the issue of a volatile electorate, yeah. an electorate that is looking around and is and is increasingly likely to say, you know what. I'm not picking the blue door, I'm not picking the red door, I'm not even picking the orange door, I'm thinking something else. And in Outremont last night, that's the Montreal riding, the Green Party took a big chunk of the, I don't want to vote for Trudeau, and you know what, I'm not voting for Singh. They scored uh, 12.5% of the popular vote, they've never done better in that riding than five before, and they finished third, ahead of the Conservatives, ahead of the Bloc Québécois. 
And I take that as a bunch of voters in that riding who said, ah, you know, status quo, I don't want it. I'm voting green. And you just mentioned the People's Party of Canada. Yeah, not a factor in York Simcoe, not a factor in Utremont, but in double digits out there in Burnaby South. There you go again. This is Maxime Bernier's party. Some voters going, I don't want the status quo. And, you know, in that riding, more than 10% voted for somebody else. That idea that there's a volatile electorate. And in Ontario, of course, just up the road from where you are, what happened in Guelph uh, in the spring? Yeah. A bunch of voters in Guelph said, to heck, I'm not voting for any of the old line parties. I'm putting Mike Schreiner, the green guy, as my MPP. It's happening like that in a lot of ridings. And I think if you're a liberal or a conservative now to Democrat, you need to confront this idea that voters are saying, to heck with all three of you, I might look around. Yes, it might only be in York Simcoe. The PPC took 2%. York Simcoe, as you mentioned, it's, it's been uh, conservative for as long as it's existed. But there's some other ridings just south of there, the New Markets, the Vaughns, uh, the, the Pickerings, where it's going to be close between liberals and conservatives. And if Max shows up and takes 2% away, that's not good for Andrew Scheer and the conservatives. Similarly, if the Greens start peeling away some progressive votes, not good for the NDP, may not be good for the liberals. So that's what I see last night is more evidence evidence we first saw in provincial elections, that there's a, there's a voter out there that is ready to go, to heck with all of them, I'm thinking of something completely different this time. And as you've been reporting over the last couple of weeks uh, from Ottawa, David, uh, the, the Liberal strategy seems to be, look, at a weak NDP means we're probably going to get back, maybe a, a reduced majority. They, they're miscalculating here because they don't seem to be taking the Green Party into consideration. I'm not so sure if they're going to win seats out of this, but they're certainly going to cut into the vote totals. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely, that's right. So, you know, this is something that, you know, the, the end, I think people are sort of aware of Bernier and the PPC, aware in the sense that, you know, the Conservatives for sure know that, um, you know, this could be an OO moment. The Green Party under Elizabeth May, you know, has been a bit of a different beast. Sometimes it's organized, sometimes it's not. And yet, as we saw last night in Nutramont, all of a sudden it showed up and, and got some traction. Um, you know, so it's it's I think one of the things we take away from last night, also from a, a new poll out this morning, Angus Reid uh, doing what Ipsos did last week, showing uh, a, a conservative lead, liberals losing support because of this SNC-Lavalin affair. You know, it's a competitive landscape for the next eight months. It's nobody can assume that the incumbents are going to win. Uh, stuff is up for grabs and campaigns are going to matter. I got it. Just while you're doing that, I know we've only got a couple seconds left here before we have to break off, but let's let's talk a little bit about what's going to happen in Ottawa this week. Uh, we're told now that uh, Wilson Raybould is probably going to testify, not today apparently, but sometime through the week. Uh, I, 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 I talked to a liberal pundit over the weekend that says, yeah, it's all going to go away. She's going to say much ado about nothing. I don't think so. What are your, what's your read on that? Well, I don't think so either, if I'm to believe the clerk of the Privy Council in his testimony last week, and, and that clerk, Michael Warnock, he was in at the cabinet meeting where Wilson Raybould uh, spoke. This is last week. And Wernick says uh, Wilson Raybould's going to be upset and have some concerns about three meetings one with the PMO, uh, sorry, one with the PM that she had, uh, one that her chief of staff had with senior PMO staff, and then one discussion he had with uh, Wilson Raybould. And, and Wernick said, of course I put pressure on her to make a decision that was favorable to SNC-Lavalin. Thousands of jobs depend on it. Of course I put pressure, but all that pressure was legal, ethical, and above board. Wilson-Raybould, quite clearly, we already know, um, feels otherwise. Is it going to go away? I think it gets worse before it gets better. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're going to have to see exact. Wilson-Raybould's going to have to be so careful with the words she chooses. 
she has already asked for an extraordinary 30-minute presentation for the Commons Justice Committee. Normally, you just get 10. We'll see if she's given 30 minutes. But um, but I think there's uh, there's still going to be some problems here. Warnick already created problems for the Liberals in his testimony. And I'm not sure if Wilson-Raybould can make all of that just go away with the uh, snap of a finger. No, as you were reporting, new Mercedes Stevenson reporting from Ottawa uh, on, on Global National. Uh, not only does she want a 30-minute opening, she's already told the committee, I'll stay as long as you want me to. It sounds like she's got a lot to say, David. She does. Now, of course, the Liberals have the majority on that committee, so they control the rules, essentially. And they can tell Wilson-Raybould, sorry, you only get 10 minutes. No, we're only going to sit for our regular you know, two-hour session. Uh, but we'll see, because I think the, the Liberals know that well, there absolutely there has been damage to their brand because Wilson Raybould, the country's first Indigenous justice minister, a female Indigenous minister, and you know what's been Trudeau all about? I'm a feminist. I'm all about reconciliation, and you know that brand has definitely taken a hit. Wilson Raybould's not going back into cabinet. She's still going to be on the outside. She's still in the Liberal caucus. She still intends to run in her uh, riding in Vancouver, um, and so that reminder is going to be there all through this campaign that what were you doing letting down the first ever indigenous academy minister and then we get to the whole issue around SNC-Lavalin that's divided the country in Quebec the pundits are unanimous bail out SNC-Lavalin save that because there's a big corporate headquarters there in Montreal in the rest of the country there's a great feeling where no 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 they should go down the the, the criminal trial as any other corporation ought to do and uh, if their fate is to be convicted of uh, fraud so be it let the chips fall where they may. So that's going to be a dividing line as well that, that has split already English and French Canada, and there's peril for the Liberals uh, on the choices they make there. David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News up in Ottawa. David, thanks so much for the time today. Appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Have a great morning, Bill. You betcha. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, things got a little crazy uh, yesterday at Queen's Park, and it all circled around uh, the government's autism program that, again, we had talked to Minister Lisa McLeod about. Uh, and again, Global News over the weekend leaked uh, a story that suggested that they had uncovered uh, some correspondence that indicated that the Conservatives had purposely put a freeze on accepting people from the autism wait list uh, to try to create a crisis which would justify uh, exactly what they wanted to do with their new protocol. Uh, well, the government obviously denied that, but uh, the opposition, well, they had a different view. I'd like to tell you about Heather's daughter, Riley, who has been on the OAP waitlist since 2017. Two months ago, she was informed that Riley's spot was open and she signed all of the papers. Heather was relieved that her daughter would finally get the support that she needed. But she was never told that there was a secret freeze and that support would never come. Truth is that this person feels betrayed and the truth is that this government and this minister has lied to the families of this province. Okay, I'm going to ask the member to once again withdraw. I'm sorry, Speaker, but I cannot withdraw. I respect your position. I respect the I have no choice but to but name the member. Ms. Taylor, you have to leave the chamber for the day. Uh, well, them's fighting words when you uh, start making accusations like that. Uh, the uh, MPP that was turfed was uh, Monique Taylor, who is the MPP uh, for Hamilton Mountain, and uh, she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about that experience. Monique, thanks for uh, jumping in today. Appreciate the time. I appreciate your interest, Bill. This is a, a file that you've been working on for quite some time. Uh, you saw the story from Global News that suggested that the, the government uh, actually did put a freeze on. Uh, they... They said no. They said you've got this all wrong. And well, we just heard the exchange yesterday. And we want to thank the NDP Twitter feed, by the way, for supplying that for us. 
Uh, give us this. Is this going to be Monique? Just a, a they said we said situation, or uh, can you lay something on the table that says, "Yeah, you did," and here's how you did it. Well, uh, it's very clear uh, through the email transactions, through the messaging that the government, uh, the ministry had provided the regionals, um, telling them how to take the calls from families, how to, uh, what what to tell them when they were being put on hold. And quite frankly, Bill, we've heard from families that are have told us their stories, numerous, numerous families who were next on the list and then were just put on hold, um, not knowing what was happening. Um, um, so the proof is in the pudding. Um, facts count. Um, so that's um, that's exactly what we're seeing here today. So, I mean, they're denying this. The minister was up yesterday, and I know you had the exchange with her at, uh, in the, the legislature. Uh, but uh, we, I, I saw the, the story that Travis Downrange, of course, uh, from Global News, uh, filed about this whole situation. Uh, notwithstanding what the minister said, and he told she told us the same thing about a week and a half ago. Uh, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's it, it's a duck. Well, this is a freeze. I mean, if they all of a sudden people that thought they were going to be on that wait list and thought they were going to be next are told that no, there's nothing going on right now, that's pretty suspicious. Absolutely, and uh, the minister herself has been changing her message. First, she says uh, the, that there was a freeze because there was no money, and then she says there was no freeze. Um, so it's the it's the messaging of what uh, suits their purpose at the time, and um, and that's not fair to the people of this province or to the families who are so uh, deeply involved um, in this because families don't know how to plan for their children's future. Um, they're, they're concerned about what this funding means to their families, the lack of funding um, means to their families. How will their children grow up? How will they uh, be able to enter into the educational system? There's so, there's so many questions, and uh, this has just left families in an awful position there's there's so many sides to this and and this is one element of it of course you know whether or not there is a freeze and and you know they're, they're going to continue to deny that i guess but it, it, what it does it's it, as far as i can concern Monique, it, it it muddies the water here because the real issue here and i think you just touched on it is the funding process that they've, they've decided to roll out here uh which basically is a one-size-fits-all and anybody that knows anything about autism and we've done sh- numerous shows about this over the years and talked to many of those families they understand one-size-fits-all does not work with autism and people that are on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And, and their plan is based on a family's income and a child's age. There's nothing evidence-based about that. Uh, we have clinicians who have uh, very clearly said that this is dangerous, that this could hurt children more than it could help children. And quite frankly, Bill, it's wasting the $320 million that um, is supposed to be implemented uh, for this for this program. Um, so putting uh, families' lives in crisis and in danger um, is, is no way for a government to behave. Well, there's a concern about that, too. And, and we've talked with Mike Moffat on this program. Mike is, a, is an economic professor up in Ottawa, and, and, and by the way, a father of an autistic child. Yep. Uh, and his concern is that, look, they're going to make this funding announcement. They're not going to be able to dole the money out because of the way they've structured this formula. And then they're going to come back and say, hey, we've saved all kinds of money, uh, which is going to make their books look great, but it's not going to do anything for the families dealing with autism. No, and it does nothing uh, for the future of those young people. We're going to have an entire generation of these children um, who are going to need our services and um, uh, be in the system more heavily than if they had uh, the supports that they need as child as children. So we know that uh, you know there'll be social services, there will be corrections, there will be um, mental health um, forensic units, there'll be uh, emergency rooms, there'll be housing supports. 
they're just truly um, setting young people out on a, on a poor trajectory, and that in itself is unfair. She is the Minister of Children. She is supposed to be at the government table fighting tooth and nail for the best interest of children, not supporting a plan that is based on numbers instead of those kids. Well, that's the thing that I think that bothered me when I first saw this a couple of weeks ago. It looks like it's a mathematical equation, not really a, a formula to try to help families that are living with this. Absolutely. They did nothing. They didn't speak to the expert panel who had worked on the last program. And I'm not defending the last program. There were many problems in the last program and, and years of uh, neglect on this file that have gotten us to this point. There is no doubt about that. So what, what are the taking next? Taking that plan and just ditching it uh, for a numbers game that was put forward by somebody who works at KPMG is not the right uh, program uh, in place. It's, it's just absolutely wrong. So what are the next steps right now? You got turfed out yesterday. I guess you're allowed back in today, are you? I am. Do you have to I apologize? Am, I, will, I will be on my feet asking the minister questions again do you, today. Do, do, do you have to apologize? Okay. No. Has she apologized to the parents of this, of this province? No, she hasn't. So you stand by your comments then? Absolutely. Uh, and, and you're obviously going to continue along this line of questioning? For sure. Um, I will be in that legislature um, going after the minister and the government uh, to change this program, as well as families will be, um, you know, speaking out, protesting, uh, showing up at MPP's offices, writing petitions. We have thousands of petitions. We have protests that are popping up daily across this province. This is something that is impacting so many families. There are not many people in your community who you can talk to today that doesn't know somebody who's affected by autism. And uh, so it's something that needs to be dealt with. It's something that we need to uh, pay attention to. It's something that we need to invest in so that we can make sure that children can go to school, that they can get the education that they need, that they can get a job when they're, when they're an adult, and that they can be a productive member of society. One of the th- I, I know I got to let you go here, but I, one of the things that's, that I, I find v- very disconcerting about this is is that when when Global News uncovered this story, and of course you've got that information now, and that's one of the, the basis for your questioning yesterday. Uh, you've got hard and fast evidence. They, here's the paper. Here are the notes. Here are the memos. Uh, they simply deny it, and 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 you know the people that follow them and are supporters of the Ford government just say, well, they didn't do it then because they said they didn't do it, despite the the, the proof that cut to the contrary. That, that's mind boggling. I'll tell you, um, I, I knew uh, Global was coming out with this story. Parents and uh, providers, they've been, they've been contacting me um, through the weekend. I mean, it's been constant communication. Uh, and families are reaching out to me on a regular basis. My, <laughs> my Facebook page is full of families uh, who just want to tell me their stories uh, because they have been caught in this trap. They're concerned about their children's future, and that's what the basis of this is. We need to make sure that the government gets back to the table, puts together a plan that makes sense for these kids and these families. Monique Taylor, Hamilton Mountain NPP, uh, thanks so much for the time today and uh, well, we'll see what they respond with today. Thanks for the, uh, this, Monique. Thanks, Bill. Do appreciate it. Uh, I want to bring Richard Brennan in the conversation uh, who covered Queen's Park, of course, for many years for the Toronto Star. Badger, you uh, ticked off more than a few people in your time in the press gallery there. they ever turf you out? Uh, let me think. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there was a there was a few of the uh, speakers threatened to uh, threatened to throw me out, but they they and never did because they uh, I guess they'd look at the 
uh, weighed the value of it and thought, well, that, that might be such not a good idea. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, if, if I'm sure if thoughts could kill, uh, the, obviously the, you probably died a few deaths out there, but I mean, that would, that's what the old days. Uh, what about this, though? You've seen this happen with MPPs who have, uh, have crossed that line. Uh, d- does it serve any purpose at all? I mean, the, the issue is there. I get that. But, I mean, as, as we just talked about with Monique Taylor there, I mean, she gets turfed out of there. It didn't, you, you know, the government didn't say, oh, my God, I guess she's right. We're going to do anything about this. I mean, why, why go to that extent? I mean, most of these MPPs, I think all of them know the rules, don't they? Well, I understand Monique's frustration. You know, you, you're, you want an answer, and, and uh, you know, you very seldom get an answer. But it, it is frustrating. But... To resort, I've never really uh, liked it when they resorted to uh, calling somebody a liar. Uh, it just, you know, she didn't call her a liar, but she said the government lied, she lied. And that's easy to say because of the legislative protection that they have. I, I just think there's other ways of going about it. And, in fact, you know, just asking questions, continue to ask questions, and and. And suggest, you know, you can pointedly suggest that maybe their facts aren't correct or something like that. But it isn't something that they would have the guts to say outside the legislature. That's what I'm saying. Well, we saw that happen. I mean, because as you say, as soon as you go out on the front steps there, uh, the libel laws of the country, of course, are in force. And and usually they, they curb the language considerably then, don't they? Oh, they sure do. Yeah, well, they know they have their protection. And it, it's gone. It, it's it's theater. You got to remember that it's 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 all theatrical. And she gets thrown out, you know. And, and she's and her party, uh, you know, applauds her for doing so. And so she marches out in defiance of the government. I I can't tell you how many times I've seen this. And and, and what does it does it resolve anything? No. Is it a badge of honor for the MPP? A bit, but only within within their party usually. I'm just trying to think of some of the folks that have happened. I mean, Randy Hillier, I know, has been turfed out. I think Peter Cormos got uh, heaved uh, more than once, didn't he? Oh, Peter. Well, and there used to be a guy, and I'm trying to think of his name. He is from Owen Sound. And, God, I never thought I'd forget his name. But he would uh, he would get purposely thrown out so he could go play hockey. <laughs> <laughs> he was a character. His name will come to me, but honest to God. No, there's, you know, there's various things. You know, sometimes... You just make a statement. If, if things have gone so awry that the government is just, you know, so off the wall for whatever reasons you might think, you know, and they, everybody gets up and marches out and, and, you know, in protest. Now, <laughs> I give that way more weight than I do somebody calling is suggesting somebody's a liar. I, and, and listen, I understand to a, a certain extent how frustrating it can be. And like I say, you watch this for years. That you ask a question of, of a minister or the premier, whoever it might be, and and you get the the pat answer, you get the talking points, and so you yeah, and of course you get to do a follow up, and they give you the same talking points back, and and I've always compared this to our question period over in the British Parliament, where they actually the you know they they answer the question over there, they don't do the song and dance, uh, and and the you know there's the the rowdy stuff that goes back and forth, and not to the same degree it does here, so I, I can I can understand how you get to that point where you just at your breaking point and just say all right I've had enough. Uh, and and I've seen that happen more than once, but but again, you know, does it does it help the situation? Uh, I, I guess you know you get a high five from your caucus members for doing something like that, but the the bill is still there, the minister's statement still stands, and and nothing's really changed. 
Well, you're talking about, like, you know, talk about frustrating. It is absolutely frustrating for a reporter or for a uh, parliamentarian not to get the answer they're, they're looking for. And, you know, but I, I never called anybody a liar and a scrum. I might, I might have said, look, and I'm not buying this uh, and stuff like that. But uh, it's just, I just think that is going just a bridge too far. I really do. And it really doesn't accomplish anything. So she got thrown out for the day. What's it accomplish? Is you think the folks back home are going to think about that for one nanosecond, or say, "Oh boy, did she ever show them?" Uh, yeah. by, by the way, I'm just responding to an email from one of our listeners from Gary uh, asking if I ever got. To, yeah, I did. I actually got. I got tossed out of question period at Queens Park once, and it was back in my city council days, and it was uh, the Harris government. And it had to do with downloading. And uh, there's a bunch of us, Mayor Morrow at the time, Bob Morrow, and you know, I think two other councillors, three other councillors, uh, got tossed out of the gallery. And we, we didn't swear. We no, didn't. There's no name. I think it was just the for shame business and everything like that when they were saying that it was revenue neutral, yada, yada, yada. And we just weren't buying that. But And Vic Copps, uh, the famous Hamilton mayor from the 1960s, actually chained himself to, to one of the pillars, I think, uh, to, to make sure that he couldn't get tossed out. So I get political protest. It does happen sometimes, but you have to ask yourself, what's the upside? Well, and that's that's exactly what you know. What at the end of the day, what what have you accomplished? And if you accomplish something that you know forces the government to change their mind, you know to to amend something, if you in a protest way or even in just a, a very reasoned argument way have convinced the government that they should change what they're doing. I have much more respect for that. Well, uh, go back in the annals of history and look at some of the uh, the back and forth between, uh, uh, you know, John A. Macdonald and Cartier and some of the folks that were Churchill, of course, back in the 1940s in the British Parliament. I mean, there is a way uh, to to cut somebody deeply with the words, but uh, you don't need to use that kind of logic and those kind of words. No, and it, and it shows, the, uh, shows the experience and the respect uh, for the house that somebody is able to do that like uh, like a Sean Conway or, or John you know uh, Jim Bradley or somebody that could cut to the quick with a few words and make their feelings known and and embarrass the government quite frankly and i've i've seen it uh, without without resorting to uh language that might be uh inappropriate. Yeah, exactly. There are very few that do it, but the ones who do, do it well. Uh, it's it's frustrating to see, and we'll see what happens as a follow-up to this sort of thing today. Badger, thanks so much for the time today. Always a pleasure talking with you. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A couple of weeks ago, we brought you this story, and, and it has to do with uh, medical marijuana dispensaries and uh, the new cannabis legislation. And of course, with that comes the sidebar story about illegal operations. And uh, we know that on our discussions with Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert, that uh, Hamilton Police, as other police services have done, are, are very active in closing down these illegal shops. Uh, and uh, what we found was apparently uh, a number of, uh, of the medical dispensaries are also being shut down or attempted to be shut down. Uh, and we talked with Jack Lloyd, who is a lawyer representing uh, patients for access to medical marijuana, about this a couple of weeks ago. Well, apparently it's uh, not getting any better. In fact, I would suggest that uh, some of the stories I've heard, it's uh, it's getting worse. I don't know if this is a misunderstanding between police and, and the uh, dispensaries. 
But uh, there's something going on here, and uh, it seems as if the people caught in the middle here are the people that actually need the medical marijuana. So I wanted to bring Jack back on. Jack Lloyd is uh, the lawyer that has been representing those patients, and uh, we're uh, pleased to welcome him back to the Bill Kelly Show. Jack, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us again today. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate it very much. Well, when you talked to us a, a week or two ago, we talked about the, the circumstance, and, and, and maybe for those listeners that didn't hear that interview, uh, there's, there's something about the Loftchick decision, and, 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 and that's having an impact on there. I, and again, I, I'll get your, your thoughts on whether or not this is, this is being misinterpreted by police. Uh, maybe you could just give us a little background as to where the, the lay of the land is now. Uh, well, currently under the Provincial Cannabis Control Act 2017, uh, there's a closure order power associated with uh, police enforcement. So police now, it, it's curious, they have no, they don't have that power in relation to any other activity, but they have the power to change the locks on a premises and they won't release uh, the premises until um, a landlord comes forward and uh, an order comes either from the Ontario Court of Justice or the, the Superior Court of Justice. So there's a mechanism in place now to lock out um, illegal cannabis dispensaries. The dispute uh, doesn't have to do with illegal recreational cannabis dispensaries. Really, the only fight has to do with where very sick people access their medicine. And so... Uh, the confusion arises because there was an order from the Superior Court in Hamilton that allowed a shop to stay open only for medical purposes. And the police's position is that the police's position is that um, uh, medical cannabis, or rather, sorry, the police position um, is that that order uh, doesn't apply to the new legislation. So essentially, the province has legislated around uh, a court order, which uh, on that legal view is somewhat problematic, but. At its core, um, the the issue remains the same, and that issue is whether or not medical cannabis patients ought to be allowed on an interim basis until the government program has storefronts, whether or not uh, police should be allowed to, to simply walk out um, compassion clubs, and currently they are. So their view is that the power extends uh, not just against recreational shops, but also against medical cannabis compassion clubs. And so... Uh, likely there will be some litigation. It's, it's, uh, in my view, uh, essentially a parallel proceeding in that this issue was before the courts and uh, the province, the, the federal government, uh, uh, declined to participate in the action. Instead, they, they essentially got legislation in place that went around the potential litigation. So um, this is what I suspect is that patients are going to have to go back to court in order to ensure that uh, there were safe places for them to access their medicine. The real concern is that when you look at the provincial legislation, its goal is to essentially get rid of the black market and protect public health and safety. And yeah. why this is really very troubling to medical cannabis patients is that every time uh, a safe, clean, well-lit space where they access their medicine is, is locked out, uh, they're forced to go to the street to access their medicine, which is, is completely contrary to public health and safety because it puts a financially and medically vulnerable group of people at the mercy of uh, a street-level uh, dealer who also may be dealing other drugs other than cannabis. And the secondary aspect is is if, if the government's goal, which it has stated at, at federal and provincial levels of government, is to eradicate the black market, um, really shutting down uh, uh, the medical cannabis compassion clubs, 
frustrates that goal because patients have to go to the black market to access their medical cannabis. And that's been featured in the news quite frequently because there's a very serious supply issue for uh, cannabis. In fact, uh, the minister in Ontario, Mr. Fideli, uh, explicitly stated this, that the feds aren't, essentially the federal program isn't producing enough cannabis for the market. And that's why we're only seeing 25 cannabis stores in all of Ontario. And what's very curious about that is there's a very, very good chance that of the seven licenses awarded to what's called, this is for recreational cannabis, but a, yeah. of the seven licenses awarded for the Western region, none have thus far stated they're going to exist in Hamilton, which again means that this large community of people who <laughs> would, you know, they would be thrilled to have a shop that the police can't just shut down indiscriminately. Uh, they're not going to have that. Um, from that's the sense that, that we're getting right now as the lottery unfolds. So April 1 was when these stores were supposed to open, but it's looking like, A, they will be quite a bit later than that, and B, Hamilton won't have one in the first place. So uh, you, through one side of their mouth, the government is saying eradicate the black market, and through the other side of their mouth, they are relying on uh, gray market uh, uh, cannabis access in order to make sure that the constitutional rights of this community of uh, critically and chronically ill people uh, have access to their medicine. So a uh, massively complex situation. But uh, what I'm hopeful of is that some sort of discretion is going to be implemented by police or Hamilton City Council ops to, to draft, which they have the power to do, to zone and license on a temporary basis, at the very least, compassion clubs so that police have some clear guidance on which shops are uh, only medical and which shops are, are simply uh, providing recreational cannabis to the public. Jack, we should touch on, on I know you brought this up a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's very germane to the discussion here uh, about the importance of, of, of the shops themselves. Uh, because I, I know when you and I had this discussion a while ago, some people responded and said, look, they can just buy the stuff online. What's the big deal? Uh, first of all, not everybody who needs it uh, and has it prescribed for them has credit cards. If you don't have a credit card, you can't buy anything online. You can't pay cash online. Uh, some of them right. don't even have a fixed address to, to have this thing mailed to, uh, depending on their, their individual circumstances. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a real need for these storefronts, uh, and I, I think that's obviously what uh, Justice Lofchick was, was talking about when he made his ruling, and that's, I referenced that at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, and that seems to be the sticking point right now, is that, uh, is that the police service are interpreting the, the, the legislation that was passed and simply saying, no, we, we, we know those storefronts are not supposed to be happening, so don't, I don't care what you're selling, we're going to shut you down. That, I know I'm paraphrasing what they're saying right now, but that seems to be the gist of it. Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, the way that they're applying it is if you are not what's called a licensed producer or a federally licensed commercial producer of uh, cannabis for the medical and or recreational markets, then, uh, then their view is that they can shut you down using Section 18. And so that's, in a sense, the baby being thrown out with bathwater in this situation. Hamilton is unique in that it's got a very serious uh, housing crisis with very large numbers of people who live in assisted living facilities, who live in um, temporary housing, homeless shelters, and uh, also groups of people who are uh, what's called precariously housed, which means they they don't have housing security and they move frequently. And it makes it next to impossible for them to utilize the mail order program. And, and I'll just note as well, and this is part of the hypocrisy that's very frustrating for this community of people, is that the privacy commissioner 
they explicitly stated that if you're concerned about access to information on how you're purchasing and whether you're purchasing cannabis through the recreational stream, which is where people are being told to go, then you should use cash. Of course, you can't use cash when you purchase online. So uh, people are caught between a rock and a hard place. And what's not helping is uh, the use of these closure orders essentially to drive people back to the street to access this vital medicine. From a legal standpoint, uh, Jack, let, let's let's talk about uh, what seems to be the conflicting philosophies here. And 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 maybe uh, we did talk about the Lofchick ruling, uh, and the police, of course, are saying, well, you know, I, I guess what they're doing is basically ignoring that and simply saying, yeah, well, that the legislation supersedes that, and and it doesn't include that. Uh, it seems as if you've got clashing uh, legal philosophies here about how this uh, should actually go forth. Um. Certainly, uh, well, that's what lawyers do, is they have different interpretations of uh, various uh, legal precedents. Uh, Each side has a case, certainly. Um, My focus really is just on harm to medical cannabis patients, and there is quite a bit of harm going on right now. And so the logic of that ruling, whether or not it binds them if new legislation is passed, I would suggest that it's uh, certainly quite wrong-headed of the provincial legislature to, to essentially legislate its way around a valid court order. That's uh, troubling, to say the least. But um, I would say that the logic of the order continues to apply because there's no in-person access lawfully in Ontario. So people still can't walk to a store and purchase their medicine. So the situation that brought about the Loftrick order um, has continued. And so um, Ultimately, what it means is is that th- that case needs to be brought again, essentially, with the new legislation named, and uh, we'll have to await a ruling. But again... Um, that takes time. We, it, it takes time, and in order to seek interlocutory remedy, uh, we need to have a good hard look at harms, and it's our position that the harms to patients far outweigh any, any harm to the province or the municipality or the federal government in regards to, to the the legal status of these shops because they've been around for 20 years. So how could they suddenly say that the day that cannabis is legalized across the country recreationally, how could they possibly say suddenly it's uh, an irreparable harm for the shops to continue existing? It's uh, That's troubling for a variety of other reasons. Uh, competition uh, perhaps is a prevalent concern uh, from the, the government actors. But the, 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 the governing concern on my end is whether or not this community of people who've got a right to access uh, a valid program and have a right to to this medicine, they're not able to access it. And it's difficult to get it into court in time to prevent harms to them. So, um, right, it's a, it's a tricky situation, really. A police discretion is, is the saving grace, and so I'm very hopeful the police start to think carefully about the medical cannabis community and these patients, and I'm also very hopeful, particularly in Hamilton, because of this uh, perfect storm of a court order and uh, a housing crisis, which is uh, documented. I have expert evidence in regards to Hamilton's uh, housing issues, and whether or not that perfect storm is causing uh, significant harm to these patients, and it, it may you know, provide grounds and a mandate to Hamilton City Council to issue temporary use 
uh, zoning permits, which they have they have the authority to do. Well, there's a cause and effect here thing, Jack. I mean, because uh, an awful lot of the people that, of course, that have this prescribed, this medical marijuana prescribed, it's it's management of chronic pain. Uh, and if they cannot access that uh, element of that, I mean, do they turn to opioids? I mean, is that what they're going to do? You're going to start with the fentanyl and, and a number of oxycodone and things of that nature? I mean, that you're going down a dangerous road there simply because the supply has been cut off. And it's and it's legal. This is legitimate. It's it's not as if yeah. uh, somebody's running down a dark alley and saying, give me a little bit of that stuff. Uh, well, it, it's doubly concerning because of the opioid crisis, because first, all of these people suffering from chronic pain will be draw, uh, driven to to access opioids. But the secondary aspect of this is that if they're relying on a compassion club that's open seven days a week and they can attend there with $4.50 and access some, some cannabis to help them alleviate their chronic pain, if that shop is shut down, they're going to go to the street to access their cannabis. And when they access from a street-level dealer, that dealer also sells opioids. And so they're exposed. So all of the stated goals, of the of the provincial legislation as well as, as well as the federal legislation, which is to protect public health, protect people, and eradicate the black market. All of those goals are frustrated when you shut down medical cannabis compassion clubs. It falls to the municipality if they're serious about this concern, if they're serious about the opioid crisis. Because I'm glad you raised that point. It's very serious, and there's uh, significant evidence that shows that cannabis helps get people off of opioids. So it's ridiculous uh, at its core. But the the municipality. Uh, stated that they don't have jurisdictional authority to license and zone uh, for medical cannabis compassion clubs, which is, uh, in my view, incorrect. In fact, uh, uh, they've gone to court previously to fight for that right, and they've won. So I, I don't see why municipalities now would shy away from their ability to zone businesses in their jurisdiction, most especially if it has to do with serious health concerns and, and local uh, economic concerns. So the municipality of Hamilton is what's called a, a Tier 1 municipality. It's got extensive zoning powers, so they certainly shouldn't be shying away from that, most especially when uh, Hamilton is especially concerned with this issue, not just due to the housing crisis, but as you've mentioned, serious opioid issue that, that could be managed through sensible zoning bylaws for these shops. Well, uh, hopefully uh, the uh, people in the City Council are going to get schooled on this and have some sort of an understanding. Our good friend Susan Claremont, I know, wrote about it in The Spectator today, and I'm hoping that councillors will read this and uh, listen to this uh, this discussion that you and I just had and uh, get some idea of the gravity of the situation. Jack, it's always a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for the time today. We'll stay in touch. Thank you. I appreciate it, Bill. Take care. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.